we're so very glad that you're here. Uh, John Pavlovitz, uh, I, I'm, I'm hesitant whether I should use this word, not because I think it's not true, but because some of us are not that comfortable with religious language anymore. But John Pavlovitz is a prophet, a person speaking truth to power in a very bold and articulate way. Uh, some of you uh, have never been to Grace Point before, but you've come here to hear this person, this prophet. We want to invite you to come back. We have uh, great things to say and great ways of saying them. Uh, John is, is, um, lives in North Carolina, uh, kind of sits on the edge of a lot of stuff. In fact, one of the things that's happening for John right now is that with his, with his um, newest book, uh, last year's book was uh, A Bigger Table. Did anybody read A Bigger Table? Uh, that's, it's really, really, really good reading. And he had another book that uh, came out in the last month, I believe. Is that right, John? Um, on on uh, hope and superheroes. Good, good stuff. Everywhere he goes, he's well received. He has literally millions of followers uh, uh, on his blog. You need to sign up and get involved in that. But I want to, as, as I wrap up my introduction of him, I want to just read something uh, that he wrote recently because I think it not only gives you a sense of his heart, but it also introduces us to the role of a prophet. So uh, John said, Christians don't applaud tear-gassing mothers with children in their arms. They don't defend it. They don't justify it. They don't excuse it. They don't make coarse jokes about it on partisan talk shows. They don't tweet with joy about it. They don't bury it in whataboutisms about Barack Obama. They don't break their backs doing theological gymnastics trying to make the Bible consent to it. These are important words, and this is an important voice. It's a great honor for Grace Point to have John. Thank you. Well, good morning, Grace Point. It is so good to be with you. But before we do anything, um, first of all, Jeff read what I was going to speak on, so I'm done for the day. <laughs> kind of stole my thunder. Um, I, I wanted to take a second before we begin, and uh, because I don't know many of you, I just dropped into this community. We haven't really had time to be together, and I wanted to see if you would share a word that captures your emotional state these days. If you were to pick a word that, that captures how you are feeling most of the time, what would that word be? Just put up your hand. And... Struggling. Struggling. Frustrated. Frustrated. Overzealous. Overzealous. Upheaval. Upheaval. Content. Content. Weird. Weird. Thank you. Amen, sister. A couple more. Frightened. Tired. Confused. So before we begin, maybe we should just take a nap. <laughs> maybe what you don't need is any message from me. You need to rest. Um, well, my name is John. I, I'm honored to be with you. If we could take that mic down just a little bit. It's a little bit um, feedback up here. Thank you. Now, Grace Point, we have a history together. Many of you who are new here don't realize that. I have actually visited you originally five years and three locations ago. <laughs> and at the time when I met you all, you as a community were in a time of tremendous upheaval, right? Um, you had just sort of walked down that road of announcing that you were going to be an affirming congregation, and there was a lot of stuff that happened as a result of that. And I was personally, when I arrived in that time, in a time of personal and sort of um, ministry upheaval, I had been released from my church, which is religious language for being fired, and I had preached my way out of a job, and I had had a blog post called If I Have Gay Children Go Viral, and it sent me down this completely new road, and so I met Grace Point at a time when there was just so much happening so much change and so much possibility. And I wanted to share a little bit of what the journey has been since that time that I first met this community. Um, doing the work that I do, I get to travel around the country almost every weekend, and I get to meet people in disparate communities all over the country and to talk about the deepest contents of our heart. And I get to travel a lot by plane doing that, which most people would look forward to, but I don't because I'm really not that strong a flyer. 
I don't know if you understand this, but I'm on the plane and I tend to realize that I'm in a large metal tube hurling through space and I become uneasy. But recently I was flying to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I was having a really good flight, as good as you can have when you're sure you're going to die in an airplane, right? So I'm there in my elementary school-sized chair, and I've got my Barbie doll-sized bag of pretzels, right, and my Dixie cup of soda. I've got some music on, and I'm enjoying my time when I'm interrupted by the voice of the pilot. And I know it's the voice of the pilot because he says, "Uh, folks, it's the pilot speaking. He says, I'm going to ask the flight attendants to return to their seats. I'm going to ask you to put on your seatbelts because we're about to hit a little chop. My ears perked up because I, I know that word. I knew that it wasn't good for me. And he said it again. He talked about a weather system that we were approaching. And he said, and it's going to get a little choppy. Now, I understand what that meant. Chop is pilot speak for we are about to be shaken like a snow globe in the hands of an angry toddler right? Chop means I'm about to contemplate my mortality one more time while wedged between two complete strangers, right? Chop means I'm going to make a lot of promises to God about what I'll do if we land safely, none of which I intend to keep. But the pilot was telling us very matter-of-factly, hey, hang on, turbulence is coming. People who are Christians, we understand this because in the Gospel of John, in the 16th chapter, Jesus is talking to his students his disciples, and he's preparing them for the time when he's going to leave. And he's giving them encouragement, and he actually tells them, I've said these things to you because in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Jesus is telling those disciples, he's telling you and me, those who are going to follow in the ways of compassion and mercy and love and justice, if you want to live that way, hang on, turbulence is coming. So Grace Point, I'm here today to give you a message Hang on, turbulence is coming. Actually, I'm a little late, aren't I? (laughs) Turbulence took the earlier flight out, right? See, if I say that word turbulence to you, I know you can name exactly who and what is causing the shaking. I bet you can name the circumstances and the people and the relationships and the realities that are causing you to feel unsteady and unstable. These are turbulent days in this country And as a follower of Jesus, what I'm realizing is the turbulence that I'm experiencing from within and without seems to be coming from Christians. I look at people who claim the faith that I claim, and my grief and my sadness and my outrage and my anger seems to come from those very people. So this turbulence is an inside job. And as I travel and I ask people how they're feeling, you heard some of the words, right? Exhausted, upheaval, sadness, grief, hopelessness. And I see it in people's faces. I see it in their countenance. I hear it in the way their voices shake when we actually get to meet and I say, how you doing? I see how tired you are because it's exhausting to give a damn, isn't it? To be a person of compassion in a time when compassion is in such great demand, right? To wake up every day and to push back against predatory politicians and toxic systems and corrupt legislation and acts of treason and presidential tweet tantrums and leadership failures in the church. The volume and the relentlessness of the shaking can wear you out, can't it? Because what you're carrying around as a person of faith who is burdened by the pain of other people, you're carrying around these big picture realities. You wrestle with the church. You wrestle with the idea of America. You wrestle with the idea of home and of family. And those are heavy things. And you're carrying around other things too. You're carrying around the individual stories of people who you know and love, people whose stories you have inhabited. And you see what these days are doing to them. You see how people you love are under duress, right? And so these big picture realities and these individual stories, they begin to pile up upon your shoulders and they reside in your clenched jaw. And they reside in the knot in the pit of your stomach that returns every morning when you wake up and you check Twitter and you look at the news and you walk out into your community or you step out into the living room and you see how much compassion is required of you and how depleted you feel in the face of all of it. And so it's in this time of relentless urgency and profound grieving and relational fracture and great turbulence that we meet. And I don't know why you're here this morning, but I think you're here because you're one of the damn givers. I think that compassion for other people is what propels you into days you don't want to walk into. I 
I like to think that's how I got here. I like to think that it's my capacity to give a damn for other people that led me down a road I would have never walked down. That's the best amen I've had in a long time. (laughs) See, friends, whether you're an activist or a minister or a caregiver or a politician or a parent or just a concerned citizen of the planet, you feel the heaviness of these days, right? The fatigue, if you let it, it'll catch up to you because there's a... There's a personal cost to compassion. There is a price tag to cultivating empathy in days when cruelty is trending out there. I want to give you a couple of symptoms of the soul fatigue that happens when you are that exhausted. Irritability, impatience, physical illness, emotional eating, addictive behavior, the inability to be present to someone who loves you, an obsession with social media, a fixation on how upside down everything is. Do you have any of those? Because I got them all. I cannot be beat in that. And I want to talk to you about the turbulence of these days. You've probably, uh, probably seen that meme or a social media post, or maybe you even, even said these words. It says, I can't adult today. Right? The concept is, whatever is required to be a rational, responsible human being, I'm not equipped. Right? Well, I wake up so many days over the past couple of years, and I say to myself, I can't Christian today. I say, I can't be tethered to this thing any longer that feels so toxic and so damaging. I can't wade through any more bad theology, any, any more terrible behavior. I can't sift through all the malice and bitterness and find what is left worth claiming. I can't do any more face palming when I check my Twitter feed. I can't align myself with human rights violations and overt racism and rabid nationalism that is defining Christianity in America. I say, I can't do it. And then I do it. Because it's like the mafia. Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. That's why you're here, right? You've, you've written it off. You've said, I can't do this anymore. You say, I can't be aligned with that thing. And yet, here you are. Here we are, Grace Point. We're still working at this thing. I think you understand that exasperation. You've probably had the experience of something that you once felt at home in suddenly feel foreign, Right? You had a religious view that was bedrock suddenly begin to shake. You had stuff that you knew, that you knew, that you knew. Now you no longer know. And you enter a season like this, a season of Advent, and it feels a little disorienting, right? Christmas for me now is a really strange thing. It feels a little, I feel a little bit homeless, because I have this muscle memory of the me I was before, and then I have all the feelings I feel right now. I have all the tension and turbulence that that causes. And that is some terrifying shit. When the bottom drops out of what you believe the very essence of your God story to be, well, nothing feels stable. So if you're tired, and you're fatigued, and you're frustrated, Cut yourself a break. You're in an existential crisis, right? And the thing is, when people go through this shaking, I know what I'm supposed to say to you. For years, I was conditioned and trained and taught to say, well, listen, if you're struggling, you need to just Christian better. You need to just study the Bible and pray and ask God to reveal the truth, right? I used to say that to people, and now they say it to me. People who find my theology far too progressive for them, people who say that my questions aren't proper, they say to me, John, you need to read the Bible. You need to pray and ask God to reveal himself. As if that's stuff I never thought of. (laughs) Right? Wait a minute. I've been in ministry for 23 years. That's what I was missing. Bible, prayer, ask God to reveal. Done. (laughs) That's why I'm so tired. See, for 23 years, this has been my life's work. I've been a pastor in the local church, and every week I studied and prepared a sermon, and every Sunday I preached it. I went to seminary. I led student Bible studies and youth retreats and mission trips. I prayed, and I studied Scripture, and I led worship, and I wrote music for the church, and all those things, all that diligent investment, all that faithful work has led me to be less 
certain of the thing than more certain, and that really ticks me off. You all have a road that you walk down to get here. You're probably here because your faith journey is a little bit unorthodox right now. And we all have a a road, a doorway that we walk through. And my doorway was theology of sexuality because I started to realize as a pastor, I didn't feel right with what we were teaching and how we were treating the LGBTQ community. And I started to be uneasy. So I thought, let me do something here. I'm going to study those clobber verses, right? Those handful of verses that people use to vilify and demean and discriminate against LGBTQ people. And I'm just going to wrap that up right? Just do this little theological exercise and then move on. What I didn't realize was as I did that, I was committing career suicide. I was jumping into an existential free fall. So no biggie. (laughs) Because the more I started to uncover those verses, the more tension there was in the book that I was reading or the other books of the Bible. And then the whole thing started to shake. And all of a sudden, the turbulence was not just a few verses. It was everything. I miss the days when things were simple. Like when people would say, John, are you a Christian? The answer was quick. It was easy. Heck yeah, I'm a Christian. Got Hillsong CDs in my car. (laughs) WWJD bracelet. And I know all the songs playing in Chick-fil-A even without the words. (laughs) It's always Chris Tomlin. (laughs) See, at the time, as a pastor, my surety was my God, really. I, I worshipped my certainty as much as anything. I was safe there in my certainty. I was respected for it. I was rewarded for it. And I could hide in it because being sure was a lot easier than dealing with the questions, than entertaining the struggle, than walking into the turbulence of what that really meant. So Christianity is now complicated for me. Is it complicated for you? Because people say, John, are you a Christian? And there, there has to be a pause. There has to be a long conversation. I have to ask them what they define Christian as. I have to figure out what I define Christian as. We have to talk about politics and where I've been and what I've seen. And all of a sudden, I don't know what the answer is. What I've found about the last couple of years is this. Once you experience that turbulence in your spirit, once your theology is upset, you find yourself in two fights. There are two fights that I'm in right now. Maybe you're in those fights. I'm fighting with and for the church. I'm fighting with and for my faith tradition. Some days I'm trying to tell disillusioned people, wait, stay in this thing, please, it's worth staying. And sometimes I want to tell them to run like it's Godzilla about to crush them because I know the damage it causes. I know how toxic it can be. Some days I think this is all a mass delusion, and some days, even the same day, it's the truest true I've ever known. The turbulence is real. And what happens as you're trying to do all this work, as you're earnestly trying to figure out what you believe and why you believe it, you have other people who will dismiss that journey in an instant. They'll tell you, you're not a Christian. Or they'll do worse. They'll damn you with air quotes. Right? They'll give you that passive-aggressive move. Yeah, you're a Christian. Or they'll say, John, thanks, pastor. To which I say, bless your heart. (laughs) Seemed like a wonderful person. But see, you start to believe that they're right, that your faith is fraudulent, that your journey is disqualified, that somehow your questions are wrong. Not long ago, I'm on Twitter, I'm having a conversation with a woman who identified as a queer agnostic, and we're talking about how the white evangelical church has largely sold its soul in America. I was talking about the way they've thrown their support behind openly racist candidates, the way they have excused sexual assault claims, the way they've demonized immigrants, and I said to her, please don't be swayed by this. This is not Christianity. This Franklin Graham thing, this Fox News thing, this harsh, horrible, exclusionary thing is not Christianity. And she said, John, actually it is. She said, this is the Christianity I've experienced all of my life. This is the only Christianity I've really known. She said, you're, 
You're not the rule. You're the exception. You're the outlier. You're the strange one. Your heresy is why I like you. You understand this proximity to heresy, don't you? That you're embracing things that maybe 10 years ago you would have never embraced, and because of that, you feel like a counterfeit Christian. Most of the people here, or if you've been a part of this community, you've walked down this road, you've had these conversations after services and in small groups, and you've had these conversations in staff meetings. You've tried to be archaeologists, right, excavating Jesus from the layers of tradition and dogma and history and toxicity, and you're trying to find the elemental stuff of Jesus. This is the work that I've been doing. And, and like me, you're trying to be an expectation-defying Christian out there, right? You're trying to surprise people with a compassion that they didn't think Christians were capable of any longer. And that's always going to bring you shaking. It's always going to bring you turbulence. A few years ago, I'm, I'm with my family. We're at Universal Studios in Orlando. And we, the first day we got there, the first thing we decided to do was the Shrek 4D experience. So if you don't know what that is, it's a 3D movie, right? But they spray water at you, they blow air on you, and they move your chair and all sorts of things. It's very immersive. And so we get to the theater, they hand us our 3D glasses, and I put mine around my neck, right? And I sit down, and the house lights go down, and on the screen it says, put on your 3D glasses. And so I do, and I begin to watch this movie really expectantly, because we've shelled out a lot of cash here. And I'm not impressed by it. It's not as realistic as I thought it would be. It's not jumping out at me, and I'm really disappointed. And I look around to see if anyone else is mirroring my displeasure, and everyone's having a great time. And I thought, well, their standards are obviously much lower than mine. That's always been my problem. And I look at my wife to see if she's going to mirror that, and she's having a great time. And I said, well, well, look at her. She chose to be married to me. Her standards are really low. So I'm watching this thing really disappointed. I just grin and bear it. The movie ends. The house lights go up, and my wife points to me, and she goes, what's that on your chest? And it was my 3D glasses. And I realized that what I had done is I had taken my sunglasses and watched the entire movie <laughs> with ordinary sunglasses. And so she's, my wife, as you can imagine, is long-suffering. So she said, well, let's go back around and get in line. And we got in line, and I, wa- I sat down. I put on the 3D glasses this time. It was really good. <laughs> it was so realistic, right? But see, the lenses through which we view things matter, Right? And here's the problem in the turbulence that we talk about as people trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. We all have a problem. As we do this work, there's a problem everyone over here has. There's a problem that Stan Mitchell has. There's a problem that Jeff has. The same problem that every constructed or deconstructing or reconstructing person has. We all slightly or substantially make God in our own image. Right, This image of God that we have depends upon the places in which we were raised and the churches we were a part of and our relationships and people who spoke into our lives and our personality types and even our very physicality. It's altered the way we've experienced life and faith. And so because of that, we all take the words and we sift the words in the life of Jesus for the things that are most agreeable, most palatable, those things that are most comfortable, right? We want the Jesus that confirms our prejudices and our personality types and ratifies our politics and wants to echo the story that we tell ourselves about God. And so every one of us in this room has a highly personalized, customized, incomplete image of Jesus. And if we're honest with ourselves, there are as many Jesuses in this room as there are people. And there are as many Jesuses out there watching online as there are people watching. And we're all supposed to be expected to find our common ground around the Bible, That's really a tall order. Because one person can read the scriptures, right, and say, there's a story about Jesus about to be betrayed in the garden. And he tells his disciples, leave, and when you come back, bring a sword. And people can read that story and say, that's how I can justify owning a weapon or defending myself or being a person who will actually mete out violence. I can use that story and say, my faith-affirmed, Bible-justified decision is that, right? Someone else can read the same story and see that when the disciples come back and Jesus, I mean, Peter cuts off the ear of the Roman soldier, Jesus heals the man, rebukes Peter and says, this is not how my people are going to be in the world. Someone can read that story and see, this is how I could never be a person of violence. See, same Jesus, same story, completely different understandings, right, of violence and self-protection, 
One person can read in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talking about marriage and saying, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and a woman leave her home and say, see, that's Jesus defining marriage as one man and one woman. But others of us can read the Scriptures and see that nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus condemn or criticize anyone for their orientation or their gender identity and be fully confident that Jesus is fully LGBTQ affirming, right? Same Jesus, same Gospels, and yet completely different understanding of sexuality, of love, of marriage. This is an obstacle for us in this turbulence, friends, because it's hard enough individually because you're trying to decipher all the voices that you're hearing in the world. You're trying to dig into your spirituality. And it's difficult because you know that the lenses you see are just precisely your lenses. But it's also difficult because we have to deal with people relationally. And you and I, we don't have the same Jesus. We're talking about Jesus, but we don't. And you're going to engaging with people online. They've got a really different Jesus than you. And it's even worse when we try to live in community, right? If you're a church of five or 50 or 500 or 5,000, we've got to figure out with all these individual images of Jesus, we have to find the version of Jesus that we're going to perpetuate in the world, right? We've got to figure out what character of Jesus are we going to show to the people around us. That's why it's a mess right now. Because you have people who follow Jesus who feel fine with banning Muslims. And we have people who follow Jesus that say, a Middle Eastern Jew that we follow would not allow this, right? We have people who claim Christianity that can't declare the value of a black life. And yet we have Christians who know that Jesus was not a Caucasian Southern Baptist. We had people marching through Charlottesville saying Jews will not replace us, and we have people who say they're Christians, and then we have people who say, wait a minute, do you have any idea what a rabbi is? We have people who claim the same Jesus we claim, who are okay with families being separated, and then we have the story of the nativity, and then we have a family fleeing genocide. So how do we do this with this customized, personalized Jesus we all have, with the wildly different conclusions we have, with the loud voices we have out there in the world saying that they speak for Jesus? What do we do? I have no answer. But I have a question. It's a question I've been asking myself over and over again. It's a question I'm going to ask you today. Given all these things, is Christianity helpful? Not as it true or provable or real, is it helpful anymore? Is the name of Jesus so inextricably entwined with misogyny and bigotry and homophobia that it can't be untangled again? Has it become so weaponized and so politicized that we can't ever get it back? We can't re-commandeer the name of Jesus in the world. Have we lost the battle for the name? So there's a story in the Gospels. You may have heard it before. I'm going to give it to you in 90 seconds. Jesus invites his students out for a boat trip across the lake. It's going to be like a three-hour tour. What could go wrong? Right? And the story goes that as they begin, everything's fine, but the storm kicks up, right? And we see that the students become upset, right? They become frantic because they allow what they see to get in the way of what they know. See, they know Jesus. They've seen him. They've been with him. They've seen his heart. And yet, they're still traumatized by what's happening around them, by that turbulence around them, right? And they go to Jesus, and he's sleeping on a cushion, right? They go for Jesus to bail him out, and he's power napping, and the reason he's doing that is because he knows who he is and he has the storm right-sided, right-sized. He understands himself and he understands the size of the storm and he knows that what he has is greater. And here's the problem, friends. I don't know if we have our threats right-sized right now. I don't know if we've made the turbulence larger than whatever it is we believe in. And so what I'm going to call you to do today is to try to realize that whatever is there in the turbulence that you are clinging to, it is stronger than the thing that shakes you. See, my pilot, he wasn't scared by the turbulence because he understands it. 
The question as we walk further down this road is not are we going to be placed into storms, but are we going to allow the storms to be placed within us? Are we going to allow ourselves to be internally turbulent and outwardly turbulent times? And I'm here to tell you, friends, we have to be the people of compassion and peace and steadiness because as much as you're going through right now, I'm looking around the room, where largely our diversity is from white to beige. You're experiencing turbulence, but there are people experiencing turbulence outside that is far greater than you know, right? And so our responsibility as people of privilege is to step into the turbulence and be the peace givers, to be the ones who calm, to be the ones who give rest. We need to be the ones who are loud in the cause of love, and we need to reflect the compassionate heart of Jesus in the world. See, that's the only thing I can cling to right now, because I don't know if Christianity is helpful, but I know the compassionate heart of Jesus is. And I know that when we as a community step into the world and we try to be healers and lovers and helpers and listeners and peace givers, that's when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And I don't care what we call it. I want to spend the rest of my journey with the compassionate damn givers. Because the battle is not between progressive Christianity and orthodox Christianity. It's not liberal Christians versus conservative Christians. The battle is people of compassion over people who have no empathy. It's the people who actually care about people beyond themselves and people who live close-fisted. So whatever you're wrestling with, place yourself in the group of people who has compassion for more than just their own. I know it's really a difficult task to do what you do to walk this journey, but I want you to trust that God is in that turbulence, right? That God is in that shaking, that whatever's true can handle all that. Friends, I'm just praying that you find peace in the shaking, that you find rest in the storms. I I pray that you'll not allow the shaking around you to create a turbulence within you anymore that you'll leave here with confidence knowing that whatever you know about Jesus, whatever you trust is real, if it's the compassion and empathy that moves you toward other people, it's the right thing. So I'll paraphrase Jesus, and I'll say, blessed are the damn givers, for they shall right side the world. So thank you for this morning. And, and one other thing, Jeff calls you a prophet, that's really a, an odd thing to walk up to, I'm just an ordinary schmuck who's trying to figure this out, and just like you, and so what I, what I want you to understand, one thing I, I, never, I tell people, my journey, a lot of you got to know me through a blog post that said, called If I Have Gay Children. And, but the reality was that the next day I'm on CNN, and underneath my name it says, John Pavlovitz, pastor. And it should have said, also unemployed and currently despondent. Right? Because I had nothing at that moment. I had no job. I had no political capital. I had no financial wherewithal. I had no marketing campaign. I had words from my heart about the deepest contents there. And those are the words that actually reach people. And so what I want you to remember is your story and your voice have a resonance that you've forgotten. So whatever you think you came to see, you came to realize I have something to say. Right? Good man. <clears throat> I want to... I want to acknowledge and express my own personal appreciation to, to uh, I guess, kind of the personal courage and sacrifice. Uh, it, it probably seems kind of cool to get on a plane every now and then and go someplace and meet new people and eat in new restaurants, but do it over and over and over and leave a nine-year-old and an eighth grader uh, back in Raleigh. Uh, I appreciate that, that you do this, Thank you. that you are willing to put all of that out there on the line. Uh, thank you well, a thank lot you. for that. Well, you know, for me, there, it's, it was a no-brainer. People will say, oh, your words are courageous or what you do. It was really necessity because what I started doing in my journey as a pastor was I started hearing stories that weren't my own. 
And once I started hearing truer stories about people, those stories compelled me to say something. And I think that's, for me, there's no other place I can be. In fact, when the whole kind of viral thing was happening, we were eating dinner, and we were, and my 10-year-old my at the time, he puts up his hand, he said, I have a question. And we said, yes. And he said, why does everyone hate daddy? I said, that's just your mother talking, son. But I said, no, we talk about the people who hate daddy, but a lot of people love daddy. And the truth is, you know, my, my kids understand why we do this work, and hopefully um, it'll, it'll form something in them. So last year at Wild Goose Festival, uh, we had one particular session that was interesting to me. There's a, there's a person named Jen Hatmaker that some of you all may know. And I, I thought, wouldn't it be cool to see Jen Hatmaker on stage with John Pavlovich in an interview setting? And so I kind of timidly reached out to Jen. I produced the Wild Goose Festival. I reached out to her and I said, so, because uh, it's her set, okay? I was like, would, would you share your set with someone else? And I'm kind of timidly saying, you know, would, would, you, would you consider whatever, whatever, whatever? And I said, I'm thinking about... Uh, uh, John Pavlovich, and she literally shrieked in the phone, and she says, and she ran away, and we never did it. <laughs> she says, oh my God, I would love to get to meet John Pavlovich and, and get to spend time with him. You're having a huge, huge impact. Mm -hmm. What we need to do for our online folks is repeat your questions, yeah. so, um, uh, and that's going to be up to me to hear you, so if you, let's start with a question, and we'll repeat it through the microphone. I think that's the way you want us to do it, right? All right, good. So, and there's a sunlight right there that causes me to not be able to see you, so I'll step off to the side. We'll leave John basking oh. in like that little <laughs> glow spot. So, questions, who would like to, who'd like to start us with a, a John Pavlovich question? Yeah. Hey, John. Hi. Yes. Um, I, I sometimes feel, I, I love hearing your story. Thank you. I sometimes feel as though evangelicals are kind of coming into social justice awareness. You like they've got to start all over again as if no one's done this work before. Mm. And I'm wondering how to, how to encourage and help people who are coming from kind of the opposite direction, if you will, into social justice, into a Okay. Can you summarize? The so the question is uh, for for evangelicals who are just discovering from the other side what about social justice and being aware of of societal ills and actually addressing those. What a novel idea, right? That you would have to learn this, right? But what can people who are already doing this, you know, can they help? How can we help them? Um, you know, for me, what the evangelical church is often guilty of is a tremendous, and it's not always on purpose, but a hubris that says, we know how to do everything properly. So they would say, we're going to evangelize, and that's how we're going to help people. I, I had a pastor in my church at the time. It was a Southern Baptist church. Really bad fit, obviously, but we were having our first call to the principal office meeting. And I was telling him about the students and all the work we were doing in the community and how alive the, the, the uh, youth program was. And he said, yeah, but I'd really like you to get to do some evangelical things, some, some baptisms and things like that. And I said, well, yeah, but we're really trying to help the pastoral, do some pastoral care for all these kids and also to go teach them how to love other people. And he said, John, it's not overstating it to say that I have no interest in ministering to people. In his mind, getting that transaction was everything. So we had to help teach them that there's actually a whole other side of this Jesus thing. But what I would say is we were, we were going to do a, a campus in another part of the city. We were going to leave the suburbs. And what I said was, it looks like we're trying to franchise out this church in a neighborhood where there are a lot of people of color. There are already people on the ground doing the work that they're doing. They already have people who know the needs of the community. So let's just not go there and set up shop. Why don't we just go there and help? So I see that posture of being a helper is something that people don't understand, right? So for evangelicals, I think you can help them understand that they did not invent these things. And there are actually people who can teach them. So it's really about relationship building and being honest enough with them. Yeah, for Thank sure. You. Next question.
when it comes to acceptance and everybody counts and everybody matters. Mm -hmm. So working as a middle school volunteer in a church, and you have these conversations with the awesome kids that are trying to put their values on parents that are like, no, how do you navigate that? Well, part of it is you you hope that the older people just die off and then... (laughs) No, no. I I totally get this. Um, Like, we're waiting. Um, You know, being a student pastor most of my life, I never... I never graduated to senior pastor because I didn't want to because my heart was middle and high school students, right? I was like a storm chaser, like that looks horrible, let's go there. And what I started to realize was they were leading their parents. So the youth ministry, um, the thing I used to teach on compassion and justice and all those things, but it really wasn't taking in our white suburban middle class church. And so I decided we're going to do an alternative spring break. We're going to be down in the city. And I just immersed them in it. And I never, after the first day, I never had to preach any of those messages again. And what happened was they started to organically impact their families. So part of it is just, it's a little subversive because you have to say, I know they get it. There are certain givens for them that are not givens for their parents. And we have to just trust that their parents are going to see something through the eyes of their children. So really, I do focus most of my energy in the church on those young people because I think they have incredible uh, capital now. They understand social media. They can do all these things. So it's really trusting that, um, because we talk about spiritual maturity, my daughter is nine. She gets it. She gets that we shouldn't do things, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I just say you got to be honest with those kids. And we had a struggle because we had to say, our, our parents, our adults are all deconstructing, but these kids haven't constructed. And the question was, do I give them all this junk that they have to just, so how do I pick and choose? So that's been the hardest challenge for our youth ministry is to say, what do I give them? As opposed to what do I say? What we usually say is, this has been the story. The story has been this we don't tell them God said this or those things. Um, yeah. I think if there's anything that anyone out here has a passion for, they should pursue. It's helping us teach young people how to be Christians differently than we've been Christians before. Yeah. Yeah, great stuff. Another question? What do you have? What do you have? Could be five years before we get together again. <laughs> In another location. Now, let me just bring the microphone. No, we're staying here. <laughs> Nobody's moving. Back to you. I uh, just kind of wanted to follow up one of the last things you said, the sure. uh, realizing, uh, I guess, the, the racial disparity that's in the room. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice about, and you've, you've touched on it a few times, about intentional ways uh, that we could consider breaking down the homogeneity that we have in here right now, yeah. I guess? You know, it's so difficult because every church is diverse. Just look at their website. They say we're a diverse church, right? And, and because everyone's heart is that, and sometimes to your, your best efforts will not yield that right? Because a lot of it has to do with the fact that some people are just never going to walk into a church for any reason, let alone a church that looks like it's a lot of people that look different than they do. Um, But what I would say is this is a beautiful facility. And when you walk in here, you feel loved and accepted and no one's going to feel like an outsider. The question is, are anyone, is anyone going to walk into this building who would not walk into another church because that's what you're really trying to do. You're trying to say, we need to be out there where they are and not trying to pull people in here to this beautiful thing we have. That's a natural instinct for church leaders. Real easy. How do we get them in the building? So the question is, what can we do that's a little bit more uh, guerrilla church? You know, go out there in small groups and actually begin to meet people where they are. That's really the only thing you can do. You, you use all your, your, your website, you use your, your pulpit to let people know that that's who you are, that that's your heart. But also you have to go out where people live and say, yeah, we're going to actually experience life alongside you and not expect you to just show up here where we're all doing it. Wow, it's no wonder you got fired. Right? Yeah. Everyone leave. That's my message to the jury. How do we get you in? No. How do we get you to go out? We, this guy cannot be on our staff. That really messes up offerings and everything. Uh, we have time maybe for one more quick question. If, yes. Okay. This is a toughie. Okay. I'm I think it is. Hand anyway. it off to where's Stan? He's not uh, here. And I'm not really sure exactly how to ask this. Okay. Okay. So I may stumble around a little That's bit. That's okay. How do we relate to evangelicals that are so far out there politically and from my viewpoint, 
Marley, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, you can hear the, my prejudice in my voice, and I don't mean to. It's okay. But I, I, th I don't simply do not understand their thinking yeah. and how they can s use the word Christian, use the words Jesus, talk to people that way, and do the things that they do and accept the things that they yeah. do. And, you know, have a, I've read Bonhoeffer. I know, you know, I, I lived in Germany post-war. Mm. I, I know all of that. Yeah. And as big a mystery as that is, I think we're a bigger one because it's not just Jews. It's everybody. How do I relate to And I'm talking about some people in my family. And, yeah. and you know, you just other than just when we're together, keeping my mouth shut, uh, yeah. you know, I haven't. <laughs> I've ruined a, a breakfast together. So how, how do we do that? I mean, yeah. you know, I can forget about them and go on and, and do the things I want to do and feel the compassion and et cetera. Mm. But there's a... Do you understand what I'm trying to I do, ask? I do. So there's a lot there. So for the next hour, I'm going to answer this question. <laughs> uh, the first thing is to realize that in all the relationships you have with these people... They're all very unique relationships. So one of them might be more receptive to something, to a story of, of someone who's marginalized. They might be more receptive to theology, to going into the doctrinal stuff. They might be more open to just you understanding them and having a history. So you have to find whatever it is in that individual relationship that you think is going to work. But it's also realizing it might not work right now. People say to me, John, is, every, is anyone unreachable? And I said that there are people who are unreachable right now. But they may not be unreachable in a week or a month. And I have to keep speaking. I have to keep speaking because one day I'm going to find the right words. They're going to reach them at the right time. And it's going to do some work in them, right? But I've told this story before, you know, being in a, a coffee shop with a, a young woman, a uh, lesbian woman, and we were talking about these issues. And right outside the window was Southern Baptist sign guy with a bullhorn saying that she was going to go to hell just for who she is and how she loves. And she said, well, how do I love him, right? And I wanted to phone a friend. I wanted to escape. But I said, well, what, what we do is we look at him and we say, he wasn't born Southern Baptist sign guy. He has a story. He has a God story that he's being told. And our, we're trying to argue against his image of God. And the other thing is that right now he thinks he's doing exactly what we're doing. He's trying to hear the voice of God and respond faithfully for whatever that voice tells him to do. So part of it, as hard as it is, we may think he's horrible and damaging and violent and exclusionary, but in his mind, he thinks he's doing something God wants him to do. That kernel is a noble thing. We have to try to meet people there and say, I know, this is what I always say to people, I know you think you're doing this by doing this. Here's what I want you to, I want to suggest that you might be doing. But um, other than that, maybe skip Christmas. <laughs> that's your sermon series, by the way, for coming skipping, up. Skip Christmas. Skipping Christmas. Yeah, that's a really good I have an, one. Really quick, I have an Aunt Rita. If she's watching, I'm sorry. Some days I'm ready for Aunt Rita. Right? Some days <laughs> I go, I can handle it today. I can engage with her. And some days what she is saying is so toxic and what is bringing up in me is so angry that I say, Aunt Rita and I cannot do this. Right? So there are seasons for all that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. This is a good time to ask that question. Yeah, because I... All right, we got a question. Okay, Chris. Yes, and you're, you're visiting, right? And she didn't, so someone, your, your guest, you, you were invited by someone who knows me, so I feel a lot yes. of responsibility because she said, I don't know who you are. So right. she may be asking for uh, okay, so compensation. Here, okay, so I have a question for you. How do, can you explain how you, can you help this sea of white people <laughs> approach black people because it's easy for this sea of white people to approach somebody that's gay or lesbian because they're probably white too mm. but when you see on the news that these people that people are saying well you're black and you can't come in this building even though i have a key or i'll get shot because you're in my building right you know how do and i'm just assuming that even though everybody in here is probably progressive, they might not have a comfortability of accessing black people who are not like me because I'm kind of like you. I can speak well. Mm. If I'm around you, I can speak well. I can look well. Yeah. But some black people, I mean, there's another side of me that if I'm at home, I'm totally that's, different. That's right. Because I can say, uh, don't please, get it twisted. Please talk like that now. Please don't get it twisted. I can talk to you any kind of way you want to. But it's okay. So you, right. run against, you run up against somebody that's like that yes. and they have a, a street vernacular, a street language that 
that might not be comfortable to progressive white Christians. Yes. Explain how it would be easy for them to engage black or Latina people that might look and talk different. Well, hold the mic for one more second. What is your name? Jane. Jane? Yes. Would you help us do that? <laughs> Will you, I, you, well, wait, Jeff, Jeff, give her back. So before, I, I would like you to tell us how we can do that, because it's real easy for me to tell these white people, but I'd rather have you say, here's what might be a good, good for you. Well, that's a good question to throw back at me because I'm, I live in a white world, so I okay. have become, I've learned to adapt to that nature very well. Okay. So I can talk to, I, I'd walk up to you and talk to you, uh, but maybe, first of all, don't ever ask to touch our hair. Um, <laughs> ever. Don't ever ask to touch our hair. Um, <laughs> okay. I get that all the time. Right. A uh, Hello? Um, because most of the time, if a white person is coming to approach a black person, then we're either thinking, okay, we've done something wrong, what the hell is it? And, or we're thinking, okay, how have I got to switch my mindset to adjust to this person yeah. coming to me? Um, maybe, um, hi, how are you? Mm -hmm. Would you like to go get a, some coffee or Coke or sun-kissed or orange drink, <laughs> <Right>. you know. <laughs> but you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, I do, Jane. And so how do you do that? Well, and part of it, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, part of what I experienced as a pastor in a large church that was leaning more progressive every day was we wanted diversity, but we wanted to sanitize diversity. So we had in our mind, when people were going to come in the door, what kind of black people those would be, right? In our minds, they were going to be really, and so we had this youth group, and we had these four students who came into the group, and they were really rough around the edges, and they had no regard for any of the stuff that we'd already set up. They, you know, they were dressed the way they were dressed, and I remember this one young man, his name was Ace, and they started being belligerent, right? And what I did was, I started to realize, I started to act like an authority figure, and say, wait a minute, you're not going to do that here, right? And what I remember them getting in my face, and it got really heated, and I thought, this is really terrible. And then finally I said, could you do me a favor? Can we sit down? And I sat down with this young man, and I said, what's your name? And he said, Ace. And that was the first step, because I just saw him as this image of conflict, right? So then we started talking. I realized Ace was there for the first time because he took two buses to get there and he heard that there were these really cool group of people and he wanted to hang out there. And he ended up working in our student ministry and he is one of our greatest volunteers. And I would have wasted it if I hadn't actually gotten to know his name and his story. So uh, for any, uh, that's probably what I would share with people is to know that everyone has a story and not everyone's going to be a comfortable fit for you initially. Um, hope that makes some sense, Jane. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you thank so you much. All. Thank you yes, for your thank questions. You.